You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Morning, everyone. Good to see you today. As Dale said, we've been looking at how it is that people tick, what's going on on the inside that, that drives what we do. Now, the silent ticking that takes place for all of us occurs inside what the Bible describes as our heart. Every decision that we make, every behavior that we do, originates in our heart, the core of who we really are. And we've been looking at the, the different components that the Bible identifies in the heart. You can see some of these components uh, that we've been looking through that helps us understand what drives our behavior. Today I want to just kind of step outside the heart and look at something that exists beyond our behavior. And that is kind of the overall goal behind everything that we do. And that is captured in the word success. We don't just randomly do things for no purpose. We do things that we think will be successful. We all want to succeed. If you're a parent, you want your children to succeed. You want to raise them in a way that they will be successful. If you're married, you got married intending for your marriage to be a good one. You want your marriage to succeed. If you own a business or you work for one, you would really prefer it to succeed because that'll help you succeed. The question when it comes to success is always how. How do we succeed? And one of the big answers in the word how occurs in how we define success, what we think success is, because that will determine how we go about pursuing success. In America, we tend to define success in three broad categories. Uh, the first, I think, would be prestige, which is the admiration, the approval of others that comes from our accomplishment. The second would be power. That's the ability to, to make stuff happen. And the last one would be possessions. But God defines success very differently than the cultures of this world have defined success. Jesus was asked to identify the most important commandment from God in the Bible. And this is what he says in Matthew 22, 36 through 40. Teacher, they ask, which is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all of your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. They'd only ask for one, but he gave two because they're linked together. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All of the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. What he's saying is everything that you read in the Bible hangs and rests on these two great commands. So the commandments of God in the Bible are not just rules that God has given us to keep us in line. They are actually designed to help us make our decisions in a way that gets at what truly is successful, how to build a life that's truly successful, not just in this life, but most importantly in the life to come. How you measure success depends on your understanding of the final destination that we're all marching towards. If our final destination is the life after this one, well, then things like prestige here and power here and possessions here are not going to give us an accurate reading on whether or not we are moving towards success or moving away from true success. It'd be kind of like using the tachometer dial in your car to measure the distance that you've traveled. Here's a picture of my car, actually. And so on the left side is the tachometer. You may have this in your car, may not. But that measures the speed at which the engine is rotating, revolutions per minute. So right now, my car was going 3,000 revolutions per minute. 
If you could hear it, you would hear it whining at 3,000 revolutions per minute. The dial on the right, though, is the speedometer. That measures how fast you're traveling, how fast the car is moving, not the engine, but the car, and how many miles you have traveled. Now, what we tend to do in life is we tend to measure progress in success kind of on the left dial, the activity that we're doing, the, the sound of our life. Like I said, if you were to listen to my car when I took this picture, you would hear what sounds like a lot of movement, a lot of activity, but it's just the engine revving. You can see the dial on the right side. How fast am I going? Zero. The engine's revving. The car is not moving. And this is the, the danger that we encounter in life. We can be engaged in all kinds of activities. Everyone around us can be seeing what we're doing and thinking that we're successful, and we can be feeling like we're successful when really we're in park, we're in neutral. We're, we're not actually moving towards what God says is successful. Jesus identified the markers of success, the, the speedometer, so to speak, that measures our progress towards what is truly successful. And it's measured by the word love, a love for God and a love for the people that God has placed in our life. The challenge for us right now at this juncture in our culture is love has become a marshmallow word in our culture. What I mean by that is it's sweet. You know, anytime you say love, people are, oh, that's sweet. So love is sweet. And like a marshmallow, it can stretch to kind of cover almost anything. People use the word love now to kind of justify almost anything they want to do. And so the result is when we think about whether we are loving God or loving people, we tend to not have the precise accuracy that, say, a speedometer gives us. We, we don't know. We, we think we are, but we're not sure. So instead of using just the word love, I'm going to come up with a statement that really gets at what the Bible defines love as in these two areas, a love for God and a love for people. So first, the first statement, the first question really is what it means to love God. And here's the question, am I rich toward God? This is a statement that Jesus points us to in one of the parables or stories that he tells. It's found in Luke chapter 12, verses 16 through 21. It asks this question, are you rich towards God or not? Here's the story. Verse 16, and he told him this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop, and he thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store crops. I'm, I've got so much money, I really don't know what to do with it now. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. I'll buy some more real estate. I'll do some more stuff. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. You know, stop the engine revving so much. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself but is not, and here's the statement, not rich toward God. Now, it wasn't wrong for this man to have resources. It wasn't wrong for him to build barns and store those resources in those barns. 
The problem was he had overlooked the key transactional opportunity of life, and that is to turn his time and his days into wealth towards God. He had done well in the wealth in this world arena, but he was not rich towards God. We are right in thinking that success is measured by building wealth. What we are wrong often in is the kind of wealth. It's really wealth towards God that matters most. Back in June, seven of us here from Seabreeze traveled to Dubai to host and put on a conference for workers in that part of the world. In Dubai, if you've ever been there, the currency, I didn't know this until we traveled there, it's called the dirham. And it looks like this. Here's a 500 dirham note. Uh, you know, you can use credit cards, you know, pretty much throughout the world, and Dubai is no exception, but we couldn't use credit cards for everything. And so we exchanged some dollars, some U.S. dollars for dirhams to be able to do some of what we need to do on the trip. I think we got, for every American dollar, we got a little over four dirhams. Now, I, I share this because this is a similar kind of exchange that needs to occur with our lives. We need a similar kind of exchange to occur before we cross over from this present life and go into the life to come. The reason is because however many American dollars that we have accumulated by the time we die, those will obviously not spend in eternity. They will not transfer. They are worthless there. Human status, no matter how popular we are and how much status and reputation that we've earned here in this life, that status does not transfer in heaven. It doesn't matter how well you were liked, how popular you were, what people thought of you here on earth in heaven. It's a whole different set of values in heaven. And the applause from here on earth does not echo in heaven. And unlike most international airports, there are no currency exchange offices in heaven. You can't arrive there and, and transfer all that you've done to be successful in this life in order to be successful in the life to come. There's no opportunity after your death to make that kind of transfer. Every exchange that will show up in the life to come must occur here, and it must occur before we die. Now, the man in Jesus' parable discovered that fact too late. Tonight, your life will be required of you. And Jesus doesn't want us to make the same mistake. The word rich means to store up in the Greek language, which the New Testament is written in. It's not this idea of you suddenly won the lotto and now you're rich. The, the idea is, is you've been working towards this. You, you, you've been making decisions. You've been accumulating. You've been storing up over time, and now you have resources. You're rich. This individual had set aside resources day after day, year after year, but the resources that he had planned for were only as good as his near future. He had not planned for his eternal future. After his death, it was too late to exchange his life for true riches. So in this story, Jesus is really pleading with his listeners, with all of us. He's really saying, watch out. I, I'm, I'm giving you a key warning. This happens all the time. Don't make this same mistake. So the question then is, how do you exchange your life for true riches? Well, there's, there's one 
big and key decision that you need to make, and then there's a bunch of small decisions that follow that key decision. The big decision is you need to open an account in heaven. If you're going to transfer, transfer your life, your work, your effort here, your days here for true riches towards God, there needs to be a mechanism by which that transfer can take place. You need to open an account. And the way you open an account in heaven is you decide to establish a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the only one who can open an account in heaven. Whenever a person decides that they are going to trust Jesus Christ as their Savior, which means the only one who can forgive them, and they're going to trust him as their Lord, which means the only one that they're going to follow in life, and it's going to guide every decision they make, that begins a transactional opportunity whereby you can turn your days and your dollars into eternal riches. Many think, though, that if they just do good deeds without the Jesus stuff, and they give to good causes, and they don't hurt anyone, they will get true riches credit in the life to come. But listen to something that Jesus says in another part of the New Testament about some people who have made this mistake and they've never developed a personal relationship with him, they've just done things, and even maybe in his name. Here's what he says in Matthew 7, 21 through 23. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You see what's, what's happening with pause there. Is whenever God wraps up history, we are told that every knee will bow to Jesus, and at that point, everyone, even those who didn't think he existed, is going to say, Lord? Because they will see. But just recognizing him at that point is too late at that point. Many will say to me on that day, it goes on, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? We were doing these good things, and we thought we were doing it for good, for God. And in your name, we drove out demons and performed many miracles. We did all kinds of amazing things. Then I will tell them plainly, and here are the most chilling words I think a person will ever hear, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. It's not that Jesus forgot a name. You know, we all forget names. What was your name? That's not what's going on here. It's that there was no personal relationship with him. These individuals had never decided to trust Jesus as their Savior. They had never decided that he was going to be their boss, their Lord. They'd never had conversations throughout the days about checking in with Jesus and asking for help and trying to follow and do what he wants. That, that relationship hadn't been developed. It never been started. They thought they were making deposits by doing good deeds, but they'd never established a relationship with the only one who can exchange a life in this world for eternal life in the world to come. You see, without a relationship with Jesus Christ, Good deeds all by themselves is kind of like mailing money to the North Pole. It goes somewhere. I don't know where it goes, but it doesn't go to the North Pole. When we do good deeds, it's fine, it's good, but it, it doesn't show up as true riches. It doesn't show up as wealth towards God. A relationship with Jesus starts by deciding to make him your Savior and your Lord. So that's the big decision. Now all the little decisions. Make regular deposits. 
You know, I've got a savings account right now that has a dollar and 75 cents in it. Because I, there's no cost to keep it, and it's just sitting there, and I've never closed it, and I have different accounts. So it's not enough to open an account. You then, if you want to become rich towards God, you need to make some regular deposits. Every big decision that we make shows up in much smaller decisions on a more regular basis. It's like marriage. Big decision changes your days. Shows up in a bunch of little decisions. Right after Jesus tells the story of the rich man who did not exchange any of his life for eternity, Jesus does a, a teaching segment. And I encourage you to read this segment. I'm just going to read the introduction and then the conclusion because it's a long segment. But here's how he begins this. In Luke 12, 22, this is right after the parable of the, the rich person who was not rich towards God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. See, Jesus is getting very practical here. Because he knows after telling the story, people are going to be thinking, Well, I don't want to make that mistake. How do I become rich towards God? He's getting very practical. He's saying, Here is one of the main barriers in you becoming rich towards God. Life has got all kinds of things that will consume your heart and your time. And he goes on to elaborate on all of the things that demand our attention. And then he talks about those, and then he concludes his, his teaching in verse 31 of that chapter. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. In another part of the New Testament, he makes the clear statement, but seek first his kingdom. Not second or third or fourth. Why? Well, just because you start a relationship with Jesus doesn't mean that the pressure of life vanishes. It stays. You still have got all kinds of things that can consume your heart and your mind, all kinds of worries. And without a plan, the concerns of life will consume you and your days, and you, even though you intend to, you will not exchange much in the way of true riches, rich towards God stuff. So, Jesus says, be aware. These things are going to consume your life. You can spend your entire life just worried and anxious and solving one problem after another and never get around to do the, the key transactions. So, without a plan, the concerns of life will consume you, and you won't exchange much. So, seek Jesus' kingdom, his agenda, as a matter of priority. Not as a matter of, I'll get to it. Put it at the center of your time and your finances, and then build your life around that. So let me give you a, a three-part plan that I found to be very effective. It's found in Scripture, but I found this to be very effective. Three parts, regular investments. Out of every day, set aside some time to read the Bible and then adjust your life by what the Bible says. Try to do that every day, sometime out of every day. If you miss a day, well, another day's coming. Out of every dollar, set aside at least 10 cents to advance the church, the body of Christ. It's called the tithe. Out of every week, set aside one day to gather with the church to grow and reset your life. Now, you will have to fight for every one of these. The worries of life, the concerns of life, the demands of life will erode every one of these. But if you're going to be rich towards God, 
these are the kind of regular deposits that we have to make. The plan of eventually getting around, maybe when you're retired, to exchange your life for true riches, that plan doesn't work. I've never seen that work. The reason is, when it comes to any kind of wealth, what's the advice? You build it slowly over time. Being rich towards God is built the same way. There are no get-rich-quick schemes when it comes to wealth towards God. It must be built daily, monthly, yearly, over time. So that's a love for God. That's a key marker. Do I love God? Not do I have warm feelings and I think he's okay, but am I rich towards God? Am I growing in wealth in that relationship? Question number two is about our love for others. The question is this, am I serving others? We tend to evaluate how well we're loving others based on how well we feel we're loving them or how well they feel about our love. And if someone's upset with us, we assume we're not loving them, when in fact we may be. So the key question in the Bible is not how do you feel about someone. You could really be struggling with someone and loving them at a high level because you are serving them. You're helping them. Serving does not mean you're going to do whatever they ask you to do. Serving means you're going to think before God what would be most beneficial. They may not agree with what you're doing, but before God, you're convinced this is something I can do to help this person. I'm going to serve them. The disciples in Matthew 20 were having a conversation about their rank in the group. You know, it was 12 of them, and they were trying to figure out, okay, well, who's number one, who's number two? I don't know how far down the depth chart they got, but they were trying to figure out where they all, you know, what the pecking order was. Jesus overheard this conversation and says this, Matthew 20, 26 to 28, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. The example of this is just as the Son of Man, this is a phrase he often used to describe himself, he's talking about himself here, just as I did not come to be served but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is saying, you guys are trying to figure out number one, two, and three. You should be trying to figure out number 12, 11, and 10. Who who's does the most serving around here? That's love. That's what God says is progress and success. We measure greatness by who's on top of the important list. Jesus says that the great serve. Now, after saying this, Jesus showed them by example, what it often requires for us to serve people. Often service requires us to be inconvenienced for the benefit of somebody else. This is why it's so hard. So right after Jesus said this, he, as you read through the next part of the chapter of Matthew 20, they and the disciples, Jesus and the disciples, start heading for Jerusalem. They're in Jericho, and they're making the day-long journey up to Jerusalem. It's a day's walk from Jericho, but it was a very treacherous walk through mountainous pass, and therefore there was only a small window of time to safely travel the road because there were a lot of robbers on this road. This is the road that the um, parable of the Good Samaritan is about. 
when someone was robbed and left for dead. This kind of thing happened all the time on this road. So you did not want to leave late in the day from Jericho to make the trek. You need to leave early so that you could travel this during daylight when it was safer. On their way out of town, they come across two blind men on the side of the road. And these men have been told that Jesus and his disciples are heading their way. They've heard the stories of Jesus healing blind men. And so they start calling out, Lord, have mercy on us. Now, you can just at this point feel the disciples tense up. It's like, oh, no, we got to get out of town. We don't got time for this. And they probably knew the way Jesus was, and they just were like, we're going to be in trouble. How, how are we going to do this? Well, sure enough, verse 32 of Matthew 20, we read this, Jesus stopped. You can hear the disciples go, oh, man. And called them, what do you want me to do for you? He actually was engaging them in a conversation. I'm sure the disciples, and I don't know, I'm, I'm, I'm guessing at this point, I'm sure the disciples were thinking, could we not do a drive-by healing? <laughs> I mean, does this, does this require a conversation? Does it have to get personal? Do you have to actually care about people? Could you just zap them and healed and we're on our way and safe? But no. Jesus stopped, talked with them, healed them. My wife and I got uh, the privilege to go to Israel uh, years ago. And if you ever go to Israel, most of the tours that they'll take you on focus on the steps of Jesus they're often referred to, where he actually walked. And it's pretty amazing. You know, here's Capernaum on the Sea of Galilee where the Sermon on the Mount took place. You know, here's where we think the cross, the hill on which the cross that Jesus died on was. And here's, we think this is the tomb where he was buried and rose from. And this is the prison. Actually, that one they're pretty sure of. This is the prison where he was beaten. And those are the, probably some of the shackles from which he was strung up when he was beaten. And it's amazing to see all the steps that Jesus took. But what I think is most fascinating about Jesus is not his steps, but his stops. As it said, Jesus stopped. If you read through the New Testament and look at all the times that it says Jesus stopped, you will discover a pretty amazing truth. Almost all of Jesus' ministry and almost all of his miracles were the result of interruptions of him stopping on the way to something else. And Jesus didn't mind being interrupted because why? He loved people. His mission was people, not, I got to get to Jerusalem. He considered the interruptions as an opportunity to serve. Now, I'll just be honest with you. That is not American. And therefore, that is not me. I struggle to stop. The reason is because I'm always heading somewhere. I mean, I'm, if I'm driving, I'm never, I'm never on a drive. <laughs> I'm driving somewhere like you. I mean, when I first got down here, you know, moved here in 1990, we would drive PCH just to see it. But I never drive PCH just to see it now. <laughs> I'm going somewhere, and that's the fastest way to get there. So I struggle to stop. So what that means is I struggle to have time for what God says is successful. 
loving people. And loving people rarely feels successful in the moment. It often feels like an interruption. It feels like failure. 1 Corinthians 13 is a chapter in the New Testament portion of the Bible that's often referred to as the love chapter because it's got one of the best descriptions on what love actually is. It kind of de-marshmallowizes the word and gets it really practical. And in the first three verses, God contrasts our view of success with what love actually requires. It's an interesting, each verse says, here's what you think success is, but here's how important love is. So what I want to do is expand this am I serving others question into kind of three situational questions. Am I serving others when, and we'll use each of these verses to describe a point at which it's really hard to serve people, to love people. First one, am I serving others when it's not affirming? Now, it's easy to serve someone if they're grateful, if they recognize it, if other people recognize it, if we get credit for it. But oftentimes, serving goes unnoticed, unappreciated, and sometimes the opposite occurs. You get grief for it. 1 Corinthians 13, verse 1, the first of the three verses. It says, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. One of the things that's successful in, in our culture, as in most cultures, is those who speak well. We affirm those who stand up on stage and speak in front of large crowds. But loving people is, is not that. It's not primarily a verbal thing. And it's not a public thing. When we love, we're not up on stage trying to impress people. We are down on our knees in the trenches trying to help someone. If you speak well, you will be affirmed. If you love well, you'll rarely be noticed and almost never affirmed, maybe at your funeral, but you won't hear it then. But see, amazing words without love, this is a pretty funny image they're giving us. Amazing words without love is, is like a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If you've ever been to an orchestra, those items sit in the back of the orchestra and are occasionally hip. They are not at the front and are not predominantly featured. Because a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal can get your attention, but it's not necessarily helpful. No one goes to a resounding gong concert. <laughs> I mean, that, you wouldn't pay money for that. You, you couldn't stand that. It's irritating. So success in our culture is really measured by how loudly you can bang the gong, how many heads you can turn. But God says all that means is you're just making more noise than somebody else. So what? It's not about the impression you make on people, but it's about the investment you make in people that is the key transaction of love. Those who love others well are slow with advice. They're slow with the words. They're slow with, with the gong. And they're quick with the help. They're quick with hands to try to figure out, well, what can I do to, to serve? that would be of help to this person. They leave the gongs and the cymbals, their big ideas, for the most part, in the case. And as a result, they often fly under the radar. Nobody notices them, but God does. 
And God says, there's success. Second condition, am I serving others when it's challenging? When it's challenging. Verse 2, if, you have, if I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, but I have a faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am not successful. I'm nothing. So this list, three amazing gifts. The gift of prophecy. What if, what if you have the gift of prophecy, which means that God has gifted you to uniquely understand and be able to explain his words? What a great gift that is. What if in addition to that, you could fathom all mysteries and all knowledge? That goes beyond the Bible to just the general field and realm of knowledge. In other words, there's very little, if nothing at all, that leaves you scratching your head. You, you understand, you, you're brilliant, would be the way this would say. Add to that a faith that can move mountains. In spite of tremendous obstacles, you, are, you trust God when you face mountain-sized challenges. I've never seen these three gifts lined up in one person. But it's describing a pretty amazing person. That person could conquer any challenge that life gives them except for one. The biggest challenge of all. Love. But have not love. I am nothing. This is not only saying that love is more important than any of these great gifts. I think what this is also saying is that love is so challenging that even these three gifts are humbled by its demands. You may be able to fathom all mysteries, but when you're faced with a child that is walking away and rebelling against you, you don't know what to do. What does love look like? Love is so hard that even the most gifted struggle to love. You've handled all kinds of mountains, but then a friend betrays you. Now you're staring at a mountain that will not move. How do you love in this situation? How do you ever decide to love someone else after you've been betrayed? Those are hard questions and hard actions. The last condition, am I serving others when it's ongoing? The need just keeps on going. Verse 3, if I give all I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, what this is talking about is martyrdom. Someone who, at the threat of death, being burned at the stake, says, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus. And they go to the flames. That's a tremendous act. But have not love, I gain nothing. You know, these two, giving all I possess to the poor, surrendering my body to the flames, they're, they're tremendous deeds. Common to both of these is their singular acts. You do these once. If you give all you own to the poor, you can't do it tomorrow because you don't have anything to give because you just gave it all yesterday. If you give your body the flames, if you say, no, I'm not going to deny Jesus, and you're burned at the stake, you can't make that same decision tomorrow because you're not here. It's, it's a singular act kind of thing, a great singular act. But love is not like that. Not, love is not one great heroic act. It's a series of small, seemingly insignificant acts that are done day after day after day. Now, to be honest, to me, it sounds like it would be harder to come to the decision to give all I own to the poor if God told me to do that. I would wrestle with that. I would wrestle with being burned at the stake. 
But you know, so far, God has not asked me to do either of those. Nor has he probably asked you to do those. We have been giving a different kind of hard task. Not the big, giant act, but the daily task that is very hard. So, are you rich towards God, and are you serving others? These are not pass-fail questions. Your answer should not be yes or no. They most likely are, uh, yeah, kind of. They may be no. These are mile markers on the road of life telling us whether or not we're making progress towards what God says is truly successful. You know the best news? We're not dead yet. That's the best news of all. We have a chance to become richer towards God. Maybe some of us, for the first time, open an account and start making deposits. We have days left to make progress. So what's the next marker for you to move towards? In both of these categories, I would encourage you to not let the day, the sun set tonight before you think of what's my next mile marker in the love for God, rich towards God? What's the next mile marker in my love for people, serving people? And do that this week. Make progress. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the heads up on what's coming on the final test so that we will not be caught flat-footed like the man in the story you told, Jesus. When we stand before you and our account of whether or not we're rich towards you is evaluated, we will have no excuse if there's almost nothing there. If we have spent our life pursuing our version of success and have not paused and stopped to serve the people along the way, we will have no excuse. We have been told. And that is not just to make us feel bad. That's so that we might have a chance to prepare for what's on the test to come. So I pray you'd help us to not let the worries of this day and the worries of this week bury these two questions. Help us today to take the time to get before you and be honest and ask you what we need to do next and then do that. Help us, we pray. We are weak and we need your help. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.